Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 221 for October 23rd, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff for you this week. We have got the Redirections Theater Company with their uh, political-themed show, As We Speak. We've got a concert version of Drift and the producer and one of the actors. In fact, uh, the actor who played the last Mark in Rent is here to talk about that, and he also talks a little bit about the closing bit of Rent. Uh, then we've got... Uh, Bedroom Farce from the award-winning theater company T-A-C-T. And we have got Starlust, The Price of Fame, a book by Jesse Cutler, a memoir. Uh, he played guitar in the original Godspell and has a lot of interesting tales about the inception of Godspell. Uh, in addition, we're going to hear a song from the new Jason Robert Brown musical 13. And, uh, well, election fever is kicking in, isn't it? So to open up this show, i got a little special treat and Hopefully, I don't have too many uh, conservative listeners out there to offend. Uh, But this is a song I put together with a friend of mine, John Pollard. Uh, Basically, we envision ourselves as John McCain's advisors. And this is the advice we feel he must have been receiving. There's a video for this that we made as well that is up on YouTube. You can find that on the front page of broadwaybullet.com if you're listening right away. You can also find it at michaelgilbo.com or in our special a video player for Broadway Bullet that's embeddable on all sorts of sites. But without any ado, uh, you probably recognize the tune. Here's Accentuate the Negative. You got to accent Accentuate the negative, speak up and be derogative, and soon you'll be executive. We can rig the balloting machines. When speaking, use the phrase, my friends, cheerlead for war that never ends. Tell them you, you will not tax and spend. Pretend you are Mr. Clean. To illustrate this old maxim, George W., look what happened to him. What did he do when everything looked so grim? He really knew how to accentuate an inference base war on fake intelligence. Claim that his team at competence don't talk about morality. You've got to. True weight the negative road has a lot of tips to give. Claim that you're a conservative. Use that Alaskan beauty queen. Accentuate the 
perpetuate emergency and when it comes to energy nuclear is good for you and me and offshore drilling brings recovery that one deserves your dirty tricks repeat you are a maverick never admit that you've been sick and palin's the president to be oh you Why lose it with a clean campaign? It ain't the issues, it's who's better playing the game. Better calling names. Better playing the game. Better calling names. So are you ready to accept? Chewate the negative. Speak up and be derogative. And soon you'll be chief executive. Remember. The Supreme Court can intervene. All right, so go check out the video at michaelgilbo.com or broadwaybullet.com. I'd also like to give a special thanks to uh, Mike McGinnis, a sax and reed player extraordinaire who lent his talents to the project. You can also see him in that video. Again, that was myself with John Pollard, Accentuate the Negative. On the boards. We had artistic director Tom Berger on a while ago for the Redirections Theater Company when they were doing their production of Border Town, and now they've got a politically inspired uh, rewrite, remake, slash original play with As We Speak. And uh, Tom Berger is here again with uh, the associate artistic director and assistant director for the show, Aaron Smiley. How are you doing? Lily, Michael, thanks for having us back. Pretty good. All right, so. Now, this is definitely very politically influenced, uh, mm-hmm. and which I'm guessing you kind of picked on purpose. To yeah, t- tis the season. <laughs> uh, it's that time to talk about such things. We, um, we thought the topics of the play were interesting to talk about. We actually deliberately tried to avoid directly going over elections because we didn't get, want to get lost in the static of election season. But uh, so, And... Much as we pretentiously would like to think we would have some sort of influence on somebody, um, but it's more of the idea that this lets us, rather than like Monday morning quarterbacking, this lets us sort of reflect on what we've just been seeing over the past two years and the past eight years. So what is the play as we speak about? As We Speak is based in an old 1935 uh, Sinclair Lewis play. It's inspired by the idea of that play, and it's about the effect on four very average Americans if what eventually becomes a fascist dictatorship legally wins the American presidency. Um, Aaron, uh, yes. put a play on my desk if you like. Sure. Um, yes, um, I came across this story, this play, uh, back in college, actually, when I was um, researching my history thesis, which course is incredibly exciting. Um, And it was part of the Federal Theater Project's slate of new works. Um, Sinclair Lewis had written a novel called um, It Can't Happen Here, and he was asked to adapt it into a stage version, which um, they proceeded to think it was a great idea to premiere this play in, I believe it was 25 different locations across the country, um, all on the same evening, um, which freaked the government out. Uh, because nobody knew what this play was about. It was about fascism, it was about communism, it was pro this, pro that, it wanted to overthrow the government, and um, which eventually, unfortunately, led to the whole program going under, thanks to Congress. But, um, so this play, um, and of course, as Tom said, ended up uh, being about if a uh, fascist dictatorship actually legally 
is elected to the presidency. Tom likes to call it our town with fascism. Yeah. Um, in Vermont. In Vermont. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just a, the original is slow. It's a very plotting play. I mean, it is. it raises some interesting things, and it is well written, but it's just very... And it's also in that very 1930s style where it has 35 characters and it has it goes on for three hours, and which is something a modern audience just and modern theatrical conventions we just we can't produce a show with 35 people. We can't even get a stage large enough to fit 35 people. Yeah. So you clump them, you group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're they're all shuffle side. We put them in a line. They march. It's all part of my vision, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> Uh, but th- but this was a great idea. So we lo- but we liked the idea. We thought it was a good time to talk about it. Like most indie theater professionals in the city, I feel like we're all pretty flaming liberal. However, comma we really wanted to make sure that we weren't like I've been very big on redirections, not reflecting like my personal political views. I like I'm an avid, ridiculous MSNBC hooked poli- politics junkie, and um, we had. Uh, I forget. Can we use expletives on here? Yeah, you oh, can. Oh, great. Um, the, uh, the, the, I ask because the, the, the Tomism I always use to describe po- political theater in New York is, you know, we could open a little theater. We could have a play called Fuck Bush. We could have somebody stand on stage and say Fuck Bush for 20, for eight, 20 to 80 minutes. And we'd sell out every night and we'd get standing ovations every, every night. But we're not changing one mind. We're not making one person think differently about it. We're not making anybody go to a bar and, and sit and debate about why they hate my play. I'm sure both of them will but they're debating on what the reason is. Preaching to the converted. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we were concerned because we've... uh, Our our playwright, John Patrick Bray, uh, down in Louisiana, is actually a, a Christian conservative Democrat and uh, because of that, we that must be lonely parties. <laughs> he is all by <laughs> He has some stories, man. Um, but we uh, we worked very, very hard to keep the play very moderate and very centrist, and really appealing to both sides of the aisle. To which we've even said in a New York crowd, I don't even know that we're going to be too conservative for a lot of liberals. But we wanted to appeal to moderates and to conservatives, and mostly to centrists. We're mostly talk, trying to talk to moderates, mm-hmm. and also I think people that don't even have a political affiliation. They walk yeah. in, they're like, ah, I yeah. don't know, which like, I think is a lot of people in New York, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, I, like I don't understand people who are still undecided in this election. Like, it's, it's un- like, no matter what side, no matter who you lean towards, like, it's been two years. It's been two years of, like, the most transparent election, can- like, I've ever seen in my life. I don't know why people are still like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know these guys. Like, seriously, read a paper. <laughs> so Aaron gives you the the play, mm-hmm. the original play. What's your process? How do you go about then turning this into a new play? Yeah, uh, back, back before this is about a year and a half ago. We were uh, looking around for new works for our season. Uh, we eventually did uh, Steve Ives Watertown, which we were here last time to talk about, and uh, we found about a dozen playwrights or so where we didn't like their play very much, but we liked their writing. We liked the style of their writing. Who and were we, they? <laughs> and their well, names no, are... Yeah. Say, let, me, let me phrase that a little, a little more politically. I was going to say... Their play like wasn't their, for us. Th- we liked their play. They just yeah. wasn't necessarily... It wasn't for us. So, well, yes, Aaron, Aaron's my tactful side. Yes. Um, but, so we, but we contacted about 10 of these playwrights, and we said, look, this is the idea we want. This is the source material. We're not looking for modernization. We're not looking for a direct lift of it. But we're, we're looking for a work inspired by the same plot idea. Uh, write us, like, a five-page treatment. And uh, so they all did. And some of them were... They were lured by the... 
money, right? <laughs> yes, by the, the, the huge amounts of Benjamins, both of them we can offer to a playwright. Um, but we, they they came in with a very, I mean, like, there there was some really interesting stuff, there was some really boring stuff, there was some really ridiculously laughably awful stuff. Um, and uh, we narrowed that down to three playwrights we really liked, and then we interviewed those three. Uh, they were all, coincidentally, out-of-town uh, playwrights, but two of them happened to be in town, then we did a phone interview with another. And then uh, we talked to John Patrick Bray and just loved what he did with it, had some ideas, and then um, even from his treatment, I said, you know, he brought me, there's there's a religious figure in both versions of the story who has a very active radio audience who sort of shepherds the people in for what amusingly in the 1935 version is the Democratic nominee and in this version is obviously the Republican. And um, uh, he had written this big like hellfire and brimstone sort of scathing speech and I said to John, I said, you know, that's not going to change my mind. That's not going to convince me at all. Can you go the other direction? Give me something persuasive. Make me see his point even if I don't agree with it and then he came back with this amazing speech most of most of which is still intact actually in the play and uh, we were like yeah I think we got our guy and uh, that was a year and a half ago and a couple of readings and a workshop later and we're finally ready to put the whole thing on his feet so <laughs> when, with all this talk I think we maybe overlooked what is As We Speak about besides this amorphous play uh, um, <laughs> It affects, uh, it mostly centers around a woman named Noreen Fontenot, who is uh, a PhD student uh, who got katrina out of uh, Tulane and is now settled back in Buffalo, where she's from, with her husband, Travis. And uh, she re-sparks a friendship with um, her ex-fiancé, Chad, who um, is dating this woman named Jennifer, and these four people are who it sort of goes around. Um, the interesting thing is that Travis and Jennifer, the sort of spouses in the um, in the plot, are sort of they're apolitical. They're very much they're very much the average voter. They're you know a little misinformed. They're a little indifferent. They're a little like that sounds like road. above average voter. Yeah, well, a <laughs> well only yeah. a little misinformed. Um, but Noreen's <laughs> Noreen and Chad. What's interesting about the two of them that the play really centers around are just barely on opposite sides of the middle. Noreen's centrist, leaning a little liberally, Chad's centrist, leaning a little to the right. And uh, what happens as the new administration takes over, uh, the Minutemen, which is loosely based on the Texas group that polices the Texas-Mexico Texas, uh, border, um, uh, ends up growing much more organized and much more scary and ends up going into a broader uh, sort of reflection of illegal immigrants and keeping status quo and policing of information and things like that. And Chad eventually becomes a member of the Minutemen and Noreen's doing all this political blogging for her thesis and is starting to raise the wrong kind of attention from the administration. And uh, Chad's trying to sort of, in his view, ersatz protect her, but by doing things like threatening her anonymously and, you know, uh, something very bad happens to her husband at one point. So um, the great arc of it is that we definitely, by the end of the play, we come to a precipice. Uh, as far as as a country, we come to a point. Oh, where, not like as in Thelma and Louise. Yeah, well, a, you, have <laughs> come, know, you have to come see the play to find that out. Uh, but we definitely teeter at the precipice for the last half of Act Two, where it's a point where, and it's not a very large stretch. I mean, like you know, a lot, all of the ideas that we talk about in the play, things like the Minutemen, things like the Patriot Act, things like the suspension of habeas corpus, all of these are not definitely taken to a theatrical extreme, but all of these are 
based on things that have happened over the course of the last eight years. And just, you know, if if it blossoms in the wrong place or it's planted in the wrong place and the, the sort of seeds of the ignorance and the fear that can come from it. But we, I've said to the four principles, it's very important to me. If we're using, we're really using the play as a parable. We're using it as a fable of what can happen with the politics of fear. And I said, if you guys play your play the symbols you're standing for, then none of this will work. So they were playing four incredibly sincere, incredibly realistic characters, um, and I think that's how we make parables sort of relevant. So how do you stage political blogging? Oh, that has been a huge thing. We are working very heavily in the show with projections design, um, with our amazing pro- uh, projections designer, David Bengali, who's um, getting a really great reputation for that and lighting design around the city. Um, he did our uh, the projections for Edward II um, last fall. Um, We've been talking, like, this set is very simple, it's very unit set, but it's it's very, we've almost been frustrated, but happy that it, it's really not a physical play at all. Like, it's all been about the table work, and, you know, uh, really it centers around her with a laptop at a small desk, and it's it's hard to stage around those kind of things. But I don't know if, Erin, you want to talk about it. The table work has been sort of really intriguing in this particular show. Yeah, it's it's been interesting because, I mean, Tom in his casting also conveniently got people with uh, with different views and different ideas to co- the to bring to the table and being able to sit down and talk about Tom will toss out like how do you feel about illegal immigrants how do you feel about this how do we feel about that and just add that to the layers and layers of the um, performances and the acting and let that inform kind of uh, where the characters are going to go and where what your personal views might be are different from whatever character you're playing. Mm-hmm is and how maybe what somebody else's views are help inform mm-hmm. what your character is. So, Yeah, that's it. You know, I joined debate in high school, mm-hmm. all excited, and I was totally disillusioned when I found out I was going to have to argue the side I didn't believe in. Aww. And I'm like, screw Aww. this. I'm <laughs> but doesn't it give you perspective? Mm-hmm. It does. Well, I mean, and Aaron's, like, when I talk to everyone about being in the show, and we have people who, from people who are more on the conservative side, I mean, a lot of people are liberal because we're artists, but, um, you know, we have a guy who's very much a, a very much a libertarian. He's very much a constitutionalist. And it was finding strong actors um, and also finding people who were going to be an interesting voice in the room. Mm-hmm. And um, smart actors. And smart actors who were, gonna, who were able to go on the other side and fight. The, you know, we were saying the guy... Uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful guy named Rajesh Bose who's playing um, the Secretary of Homeland Security, who's probably the only big, one of the, one of the only big high profile. We never meet the presidential candidates. Um, uh, one of the big high profile pe- profile people we meet, and I had said to him when. You know, the playwright had described the role to me as if you mixed Bobby Jindal, who's the uh, governor of Louisiana, with Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. And, like, I knew when I was calling people in for the role, if that didn't send them, like, stark terror screaming out of the room that, like, I found somebody. And this guy's really great. He's much like us. He's a liberal artist, but he's playing this role so terror. His first scene with the Reverend with Harrison is terrifying. Is terrifying. It it creeps me out. We've all been losing sleep because we're all doing research and we're looking at all of this stuff and we're like, wow, that's really scary shit. Mm-hmm. So, do you think uh, an election win one way or the other will help your show? You know, I was <laughs> <laughs> I was saying to Aaron the Aaron the other day. I was thinking if McCain won, then we'd have sort of the the way that West Wing's ratings got bumped because Democrats were like. Jed Bartlett's my president. Um, but I think that uh, 
Uh, I was saying to Aaron, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I've been talking about Barack Obama since before anybody knew who he was. I uh, started inter- inter- being interested in him when he's a state senator and um, have been uh, talking about him for a long time and have been excited about him for a long time. And I think that I said to Aaron, I'm like, I don't, you know, we go up on November 7th and we'll have a few days of tech left after elections. I'm like, I feel like if Obama wins, I'm going to be like too happy to direct this play. I'm going to just be like, <laughs> everything's fine. Everything's okay. But I think it's a good, I think it's good. And we were concerned about that, keeping the relevance of it. You know, people had election exhaustion and just that the stuff we talk about in the play, I, I truly think is important. You know, we always say with three directions, we're not curing cancer. We're not saving Darfur. We're not feeding Africa. We know that. We're telling stories. But, oh, shoot. Well, yeah. this interview's not going to Oh, then <laughs> we're ending this now. But uh, we do do fundraisers for Broadway Cares. Um, but we, we very much... You know, it's the idea that that stories are important, parables are important. This is this helps us inform our daily life. You know, Shakespeare called us chroniclers of the age. You know, we reflect what we see and what we live through, and you know, that's the biggest thing we try to do with RTC. All right, so it's as we speak, and it opens on November 11th and runs to the 23rd. November 7th. November 7th. Sorry, okay, it's yeah. okay. You can get tickets at smartticks.com. Yeah. And uh, the website for your theater company? Uh, redirectionstheater.com. And theater with, R-E. Uh, with an R-E. <laughs> All right. So uh, Tom Berger and Emily Smiley, I thank you so much for talking about As We Speak. And best of luck in the show Great. and uh, in you. the election. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thanks for having us, Michael. Okay. Thank you. The Call Board. A planned late 2008 off-Broadway run of the new Joe DePetri, David Bryan musical The Toxic Avenger, currently playing George Street Playhouse in New Jersey, has been postponed, according to an equity casting notice. The New York City engagement had not officially been announced, but an earlier casting notice indicated a wholesale move of the GSP production for a December commercial off-Broadway opening. The campy and gory New Rock musical is based on the cult film. The New Jersey set musical, with songs by Joe DiPietro and Bon Jovi founding member David Bryan, with book by DiPietro, is currently having its world premiere at George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Tony Award winner John Rando directs. Also, Tony Award-nominated playwright Douglas Carter Bean has reconceived his stage musical Dancing in the Dark, based on the MGM picture The Bandwagon, and seen earlier this year in San Diego, as a vehicle for Broadway leading man Cheyenne Jackson. Playbill.com has learned that a late October New York City industry reading is expected to explore the rewrite of the backstage musical comedy about oil and water stars of a troubled Broadway-bound musical. And, big news, Bartlett Share, the Tony-winning director of the current Tony-winning revival of South Pacific, has been appointed the resident director of Lincoln Center Theater, which is currently presenting the aforementioned Rodgers and Hammerstein classic at the Vivian Beaumont. Share earned Tony nominations for his work on the Lincoln Center Theater production of The Light in the Piazza and Wait and Sing as well. Share will continue his duties as artistic director of Seattle's Intamon Theater, but will now align with Lincoln Center Theater to stage one production for the company per year and will serve as artistic consultant to LCT artistic director Andre Bishop. Actors from the Broadway cast of Avenue Q, Billy Elliot, Spamalot, Spring Awakening, Xanadu, and The Color Purple will take part in a one-night-only production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Directed by David Lefkowitz, the benefit performance will be held December 15th at the Gerald W. Lynch Theater at John Jay College. Showtime is 8 p.m. 
And finally, Gypsy's Allison Fraser and recent Xanadu star Mary Testa will return to the Lori Beachman Theater in November following two sold-out concerts at an intimate night spot in the past few weeks. Their show, Together Again, celebrates the work of Fraser's late husband, composer Rusty McGee. New showtimes are November 10th at 7 p.m. and November 24th at 10 p.m. Part of the Voices from the Great White Way series, Fraser and Testa's concert features a four-piece band led by Allison Leighton Brown and special guest Annie Golden. Sweet Charity. Jeremy Schoenfeld should be familiar to our listeners. As a composer, he was on in our very first Nymph run with Drift. And uh, recently he was on with the release of his uh, CD songbook, 37 Notebooks. And uh, now he's back, not in the studio, but his Drift is being represented as a concert version, all-star benefit. Uh, it is being produced by Corey Gardner, who's executive producer of the Path Fund. And we've got her in the studio here today, as well as Adam Cantor, who recently made his Broadway debut as the final mark in Rent. How are you guys doing? We're great. Very well, thank you. <laughs> now, Adam, I understand that you're very last minute into this concert here. Yeah, I just joined a few days ago. Um, I got uh, an email from Jeremy asking if I would uh, jump on board, and I immediately replied. I was like, yes, thank you, yes. <laughs> we're, we're pretty thrilled when Adam said yes. I'm a big fan of his, and I really, I just met him uh, like uh, a week and a half ago. Um, I was working on a concert called, uh, it was the Broadway in South Africa concert. Broadway in South Africa is, a, is an organization that um, I'm a co-founder of, and um, so we were we were doing this concert at the Symphony Space on I think October tenth, and um, we 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 got composers to write songs based off of poems and essays that children in South Africa wrote, um, and so Jeremy wrote the most incredible song um, uh, that Allison Case sung, and I sang I, I did backup for her, and um, I I fell in love with his material. I downloaded his songs on the internet. I I. I was like, how did I not, how did I not know about this guy? I mean, he, I think he's he his music is the is the most incredible blend of like you know Billy Joel, Jonathan Larson, Elton John. It's like all the all my favorite songwriters, um, and so I'm thrilled to be involved in Drift. Yeah, we're we're pretty thrilled to have Adam. Um, Jeremy is a dear old friend of mine, and I've sort of been around the Drift world for many years and supporting his music. I've seen him play a million times and. When the opportunity came along to take another look at Drift, reconceive again, um, he asked me to come on and executive produce with my company, The Path Fund, and we produce charity events um, several times a year. Our big one is Rockers on Broadway. We're branching out and doing Drift as a completely separate project. We raise money for charities like Broadway Cares and Atlanta's Broadway Dreams Foundation, making sure that performers and musicians and our community have a, a place to give back to the community that we all love to be in. Uh, now, certainly we should definitely mention uh, this is really a star-studded, you know, concert. It sure is. <laughs> um, I, as we were pulling, you know, Jeremy and Lauren Kennedy is directing. She's sort of moving into a, a directing role on this. Um, as Jeremy and Lauren and I sat around trying to talk about who we wanted to do the show, Immediately, Julia Murney, who is an all-star favorite in the in the Broadway community, let's get Julia. Perfect. We've got Terrence Mann, who is, you know, I would say Broadway royalty. Adam Pascal, who we we all know and love, Aida Rent, pretty brilliant 
a cabaret, you know. And Jeremy said, I want to take Adam's voice and sort of take Drift and make Adam sort of the central person in Drift and bring out all these people that are in in this person's life that affect change, you know, as you're going through a difficult time in your life. So we've got Adam, Terry, Julia, Chris Coleman, who's in Jersey Boys, who's outrageous, Carla Mosley, and couple other people and it's it's pretty exciting it's monday november 3rd at bb king's blues club and grill uh tickets are 60 dollars for seats and 30 dollars for standing room and there are plenty of tickets available we hope everybody can get out and see this amazing concert yeah i should mention too that even the jeremy's interview when he was doing the nymph concert Mm -hmm. goes into a lot more detail about the show drift is still available in episode eight so excellent I can't wait to re- hear that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Revisit that. So what was the impetus for getting this show together for the concert version? Well, after Jeremy released 37 Notebooks, he had a really successful night uh, CD release party. We had a bunch of people come around and sing the music from 37 Notebooks. And I, f- from my perspective, I've been around literally since Drift happened. I was Drift is sort of based upon the tagline being... When love is drifted on, what do you rely upon? When you when the relationships in your life change, go through a breakup or a divorce or whatnot. And at the time, Jeremy was getting separated from his first wife, and and uh, it was it was really a rough time. And writing this album for him was extraordinarily cathartic and really important for him. It was produced as a concert, one man concert. It was produced in the Nymph show that you have discussed before. And after thirty seven notebooks, we said we looked at at this piece of work and said, we're not, it's not done yet. What else can we do with it? It's such a valuable, viable piece. What can we do with it? Let's do a concert and let lots of different people sing, sort of the way 37 Notebooks sort of happened, even though he, he didn't write originally write Drift as a multiple people thing. So we're trying to create a new piece out of this. Uh, it, it's sort of Drift 3.0. <laughs> well, in fact, you know, it was very male-centric, obviously. Yes. It was a you know, one-man thing. How did you bring in some female voices, so to speak, into the Well, show? this the story, you know, it's based upon two people splitting up. So there's always that other perspective. And Jeremy, as a writer, I, I mean, his music's brilliant, but I think that he can really look from both sides of, of the aisle. And, and when he was doing the additional songs for the nymph production because they definitely wanted women in that production and and felt like that it rounded out the the cast um he wrote a couple additional songs and and reconceived one or two songs so that the the woman's perspective could be involved all right well before we continue maybe we should listen to one of the songs from the original concept recording yes great So uh, this song is called Drift, uh, title song. Is, is there anything about this song you'd like to set up? For? Not, no. I'd rather <laughs> see what I come up with afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's take a listen. It takes more than a miracle To weather every storm The song always sounds more lyrical When the writer uses proper craft and form But when love has drifted on What do you rely on? 
Unless you're willing to stand tall No action reprehensible If you never act at all And when love has drifted What do you rely upon When love has drifted on What do you up with something you wanted to say about this? You know, uh, like I said, uh, Jeremy is, is truly a brilliant man, and I, and, you know, every time I hear this album, and I, I was one of those friends that supported Jeremy through that time of his life, and it, this, this still moves me to this day. It's eight years later or something like that, and it really does still move me to this day, and I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of this whole show. Well, so Adam, now yes. moving on to your recent Broadway debut, was this uh, a Star is Born scenario come from a city of like uh, two people and moved to New York? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you know, my, my hometown can boast a few stars. We have uh, Nikki Blonsky of Hairspray fame. And now have... decking out the rich people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You you know, no comment that? on that. <laughs> oh. 
Nikki, Nikki's no, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, uh, well, where where are you from? I, I'm from Great Neck, Long Island. Um, okay. So I, I grew up, you know, I grew up coming to every Broadway show, and you know, I was the kid at the stage door asking for autographs and collecting playbills, and I was, you know, total theater geek. And um, I went to Northwestern University outside Chicago for school, uh, for college, and I, there I met Michael Greif, who directed Rent. Um, he came to Northwestern to direct a new piece he was working on called In the Bubble, based on the uh, John Travolta Boy in the Bubble movie. Um, <laughs> and I played the boy in the bubble. And um, so we sort of hit it off, and when they were looking for the final mark, um, I auditioned at Telsey and, uh, and uh, landed the role. <laughs> it's my fr- it was my first professional job. I had never been paid to act before working on Broadway, <laughs> starring <laughs> in the final cast of Rent. It was absolutely insane. Um, but it was a blessing. And, um, uh, and then, uh, you know, through that I met some wonderful people, including Jeremy. Um, so, so, so how long did you get to play Mark? In the uh, six climber? months. I started in March, um, and we just closed September 7th. Um, <laughs> yeah, tears. Tears. I miss but, it. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear they're tears. painting over the, 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 the graffiti wall. What? In the back. That's what I hear. Really? I hear That's so sad. That's I was sad. hoping they'd find a way to preserve that. You know, I... What, 12 years ago? Is that when Rent mm-hmm. opened? Uh, mm-hmm. There's tons of me written really? over that wall. I'm sure it's been written over and over and over over the years, but, oh, yeah, I had, I was uh, Freddie Walker, who played the original Joanne. I was her assistant back in the day when I was first fresh out of school, and I spent a lot of time at Rent, and, that you know, there's so much of that show that's a little piece of all of us that's within this generation, you know, mm-hmm. so... Congratulations for being able oh, to get you. that in, you know, at your first job. That's awesome. Thank you. It, it was <laughs> awesome. And working with the, that final cast was amazing, too. And I, and then I think Jeremy's uh, close with Tracy Toms yes. and, and with Tracy, Eden, right? Yes. Eden Espinosa. And uh, Tracy did uh, a song on the 37 Notebooks album. Okay. And yeah. I'm actually great, great friends with Will. And mm-hmm. it, uh, it was and Michael McElroy. Yeah. It was a really amazing final cast. Yeah. It, and now, is mm-hmm. that is that movie being released if you guys oh. didn't see it get see this movie that red <laughs> film was something incredible and unfortunately very much under the radar I mean it uh, it was sh- my impression sh- was it wasn't supposed to be like a live simulcast in theaters or something was it, it wasn't li- I mean it was it, the radical media and Sony in conjunction with Sony pictures filmed the show in a very cinematic way I mean it was filmed for the theater um, as opposed to, you know, just a documentation of a live show for, like, PBS or for, you know, the Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library. It was actually filmed very specifically for a movie theater. Um, and uh, it was done in an incredibly brilliant way. I mean, the choice of shots, the the editing, cinematography, it was so specific and... Uh, transformative, I think. Um, but unfortunately, it was only in theaters for about four days, and not many people knew about it. And it was, I think people were a little confused by it because didn't know, oh, wait, is this... I already saw the Rent movie. What is this? Or, right. You know. um, I don't know. I, when I got that email, see the final performance of Rent after it had closed, 
I was like, I'm going, whatever, <laughs> whatever it costs. And it was it was really quite impressive. And seriously, as a as a Rent fan, I mean, I know every word. I was chomping at the bit when the when the album was first released all those many years ago, and I had the demos, and I you know, wow. I, Rent is a huge was a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. So. For me to be able to watch this film, and you're absolutely right, it was it was filmed in such a creative, brilliant way. You felt like you were on stage with the people. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant, and I, I'm really I I believe that they're planning on releasing it on. I think DVD, they're going to put it on DVD. Which yeah. if if y'all haven't seen it out there, wait when this comes out and you're a Rent fan, go buy it oh, immediately. God. Yes, yeah. And I, I mean, growing up, I Rent was such a huge part of my life too. I mean, growing up in New York, I I'd, I'd see it. I remember. Not only did I see it a whole bunch of times in the theater, but I remember like seeing another show with a friend and walking back to Penn Station to take the Long Island Railroad home. And, you know, we'd pass by 41st Street on the way back to Penn Station and Rent was still playing. So we just hung outside and like listened in to the end of the show, <laughs> you know, and playing it around the house with my family and, you know, in the car. And to be part of the, the closing cast um, of this production was, was thrilling, to say the least. Uh, so Adams has has been getting a little paid gig in New York helped in you know your future auditions and, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah I mean it's just helped to um, <laughs> yeah just by making these connections I mean this I certainly wouldn't be doing this concert had it not been for rent um, you know just I, just to have that a little bit of uh, recognition and. Um, Mostly just to, to to have worked with these amazing people and to to meet other people through those people, for sure. As a producer and somebody who's been in this business about 15 years, I have to say... This one, he's going to be around for a long oh, time. Oh, I think, hell. I think, I think you have you have a very viable career heading oh, your way hell. in a big way. So. Thank you, thank you very much. Now, Corey, before we kind of wrap up, uh, maybe you could go into a little bit more detail about the Path Fund. Sure, right? Path Fund is an organization I started um, with my my business partner Donnie Kerr, who's in, currently in the cast of Billy Elliot. Um, we. Started Was it. he also in 37 Notebooks? Or he did. Cause? He yeah. did a song yeah. in 37 yeah. Notebooks yeah. called My My. Exactly. <laughs> um, Donnie was in the original cast of Tommy on Broadway. And this, I'm going to give you the background story real quick. Pete Townsend looked at Donnie. Donnie was the rocker of the cast and said, is there any way we can get this cast playing in a rock and roll venue before we do the show? I want them to feel that raw edginess of what it feels like to play with a rock band not with a Broadway band, before they get onto this big stage with proscenium and set and the whole deal. Donnie said, sure. So they grabbed a bunch of the cast members and did a little gig downtown and charged at the door, and then they had this money, and they were like, what are we going to do with this money? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, we just had some rockers on Broadway do this concert. Well, let's give some of this money to charity. And for 15 years, or really 13 years Donnie's been doing this. Rockers on Broadway, small concert, getting Broadway people and rock stars together once a year and doing like a small concert of whatever they want to sing. When I came along and started working with Donnie, we've been friends for years, and uh, when I came along, I said, let's, let's see what else we can do with this. And he had been really wanting to sort of expand his ideas and his creativity with this, so we decided to do it at BB King's instead of cutting room or Arlene's Grocery, you know, doubling or tripling the size of our event, bringing in different kind of rock stars, bringing in all different kind of stuff, and let's raising the ticket price. And that first one we did, which was Jersey style, we used a lot of the cast of Jersey Boys, um, 
We did all songs from artists that were born and raised in Jersey. Bon Jovi, Bruce Springsteen, Frank Sinatra. So that was, that was we started making it thematic. The last one we did after that was we did uh, Rockers on Broadway Salutes Motown. Barry Gordy came. Holland Dozier Holland, who all, wrote all those Motown songs, came. We had an amazing all-star lineup between rock and rollers and Broadway people and raced $35,000 and gave it away to charity, and it was awesome. And we put together the Temptations of Four Tops, the Jackson Five, and the Supremes with all Broadway performers. And if you go on um, YouTube or on our website, rockersonbroadway.com, you can see a clip of that. So out of all this, the PATH Fund, we, we had to have a nonprofit. If we're giving all this money away, we couldn't, you know, put it in somebody's checking account and then get taxed on it. So we created an official uh, 501c3 foundation. And PATH came out of Donnie and I sort of brainstorming one night, talking about what we're doing, performing artists that help. That's what we are. We're performing artists that help. And PATH, there you go. Oh, my God. And basically our whole gist is to give people, musicians, actors, dancers, singers, um, an opportunity to give their um, – their goods, their soul, their energy back in in a really creative, fun way and raise money for charity. And uh, our other big concert this year is uh, After Drift, which is November 3rd at BB Kings. Um, we are doing the 15th anniversary of the original cast of The Who's Tommy at the August Wilson Theater on Monday, December 15th. This is a coup, I would say, in the Broadway community. <laughs> We're pretty excited, and that's almost sold out, so if you, all you listeners out there... Um, want to see Tommy with the original cast, get your tickets immediately. Um, but it, it really, it's it's a pleasure for me to be able to do what I do with Path Fund and be involved in this amazing community and give back in my own way. All right. So Drifts at BB King's, one night only, November 3rd. Yep. So people grab their tickets. Uh, they can go to Ticketmaster.com. Or the uh, BB King's box office. Mm-hmm. And uh, anything else you want to shoot out there last minute here? No, thank you for having us. Really fun. All right, Adam Cantor, Corey Gardner, thanks so much for stopping by, and best of luck as you get ready for the show. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. On the boards. The Actors Company Theater is back here with us. They've had a string of very critically acclaimed productions in the past, and T-A-C-T, TACT, as they're also known. Uh, one of their main mission statements is to bring alive new playwrights, and or not new playwrights, but playwrights that have received little attention in the past 20 years in New York City. And one of those is Alan Akeborn with Bedroom Farce, the subject of their newest show, uh, which is also, again, getting rave reviews. We've got artistic director of TACT, Cynthia Harris, who is also acting in the show, along with founding member and actor Larry Keith, here to talk about Alan Eckborn and Bedroom Farce. How are the two of you doing? Well, you first, Cynthia. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing wonderfully. It's great fun to be involved in this play. And um, it's a high now that we're open and critically acclaimed, which makes you relax and enjoy doing the part instead of worrying about what's going to happen. It's a very rewarding play to do because there's so much. It's it's so carefully built. There isn't a, a, a spare thing in it. Everything connects uh, as you go through the play. Everything is laid in beautifully and then pays off and the characters are, are, are great fun. The material is hilarious. Uh, I was reminded of a, a story that my friend Marty Moran, whom you may or may not know, uh, told me when he went in to uh, replace uh, the leading uh, actor in, in Spamalot and Mike Nichols 
was who was the original director of Spamalot, put him into the show, and I was talking to Marty about it because I had seen him, and he said, well, the best thing Mike Nichols ever told him was, just remember, the material is funny, you're not. <laughs> so, so, but let me tell you, Larry is funny <laughs> in funny material. So well, okay. and, so, and so is Cynthia. But the, but the point of it is, don't try to be funny. Let the material work. And Aikborn's material works brilliantly. It, well, before we talk a little bit more about the play, I, I'm sure I mangled your company's mission a little bit in my intro. So, Cynthia, do you want to kind of reiterate what tax mission is? Well, yeah, is? It, 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 you make it sound very high-minded. But, uh, <laughs> we're, but, we're anything but that. Um, the mission of the company is actually to do plays that haven't received perhaps the attention they might have because either they're not commercially guaranteed uh, a success or they present something, uh, too many characters to be done on Broadway, which is, unless a musical, they prefer two character plays. Uh, expense, we, expense is the we, guiding. We do on a shoestring what Broadway doesn't dare to do. And uh, plays that haven't been seen that we feel have been neglected. And Aikborn, who is a stellar um, writer and a, considered a British national treasure, is not that well known over here. Yeah, well, yeah, he's often referred to as the British Neil Simon. And yeah, like, yeah, and he, he is that and more. <laughs> he goes beyond. There's when you write about marriage, as he does in this, uh, with four couples, he delves into. Behind the laugh is a tear, and it's it has its darkness. So that's the mission. To get back to your question, <laughs> little-known plays that deserve to have greater attention that haven't been seen in over 15 years. What funny series? Yeah, sorry, <laughs> Cynthia. But what, what we have found, extending on something Cynthia said that we do on a shoestring, what Broadway would cost them, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do, we have found that the plays speak for themselves. So if you don't have all of the high-flown production values that you find on Broadway with great sets and uh, uh, all of that machinery and the appurtenances of, of major Broadway This theater. doesn't have machinery in it? <laughs> no, no, oh, no. no. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we, we cut the machinery. Uh, <clears throat> the play, nevertheless, will come through, and it is the play, actually, that people come to see. So uh, we also do a, a, a series of uh, a studio concert readings without scenery and without a costume and all of that. Uh, we do have some, some music and so on, but it's a book-in-hand reading series, and you'd be amazed that uh, many of the people who come to see it Think we have scenery? Oh, I got to tell you, costume. <laughs> when we were because of the the effectiveness of that. When we started out, we were at the Players Club downtown on Gramercy Square, and this is truth. A woman was walking in, talking to her friend, and she and we used to do it with a binder in hand, in front of a piano on this narrow stage, and she said to her friend, "Wait till you see the sets." <laughs> which, of which we had none. The point, the point, therefore, being that you know, it's a kind of theater of the mind in a way. And if you can get the audience to focus on the play, the characters, the the, the situations, and the story that's being told, the rest they fill in. It's like the old days of radio. Uh, you know, I could imagine all kinds of things listening to the Lone Ranger. I saw the open plains and the horses and everything else, but it was all in my head. We accomplished the same kind of thing, and it's very satisfying for audience. But I might say that this particular set, which got glorious reviews, uh, is amazing. We have three bedrooms on one 
small stage at the Vecna Theater, and it's absolutely convincing. Three different styles. One is cozy chins, one is modern minimalist, and the other is young people starting out in their first, first home. Maybe I didn't make it clear that this, the reading series, the studio reading series, has no scenery. Mm -hmm. The productions that we do at the, at the Theater Row, at the Beckett, uh, are fully realized productions. But my point was that whether you have either, and whether you have a, a, a production costing uh, $5 million or very little, if you tell the story... And if the characters come alive and are real, the rest means a lot less. Now, for theater companies without a home, I've rarely seen so many companies as consistently. As far as I know, over the past couple of years, you've been doing everything at Theater Row. Is that correct? That is our uh, our our um, a fully presented place. That is our home. Yeah. yeah, Theater Row. We feel it's a intimate yet large enough venue for people to really. Uh, attend and enjoy it. And our other home is our own studio, which is at 900 Broadway. So we have this away from home and home. We go to summer camp, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's great having Theater Row right here, you know, in great. the heart of the theater district on Broadway. People Absolutely. don't need to... What is what is great about it is that it's it's an intimate enough setting so that the audience is very close to the play. I mean, it's really, you know, there's an intimacy between actors and audience that uh, you don't get in a much bigger theater. And it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Jen Thompson, who directed this, uh, was in London, uh, in England right before we started rehearsal to meet Akeborn and to go to a suburb that she thought would be similar to the setting of this play. And she met with him and adored him. And uh, I'm so sorry he can't come. I don't think he's quite well at the moment. Mm. Um, but he continues to write. Uh, 69, and he's still writing. He, he pumps out like a play a year, right? <laughs> Isn't that uh, kind of well, he's very prolific. <laughs> I'm looking at this. We have something here for you who are listening that talks about um, how many plays he's done. It's, it's, he's amazingly prolific. Well, he's written, uh, he's written uh, 72 plays, 41 of which have been produced in the West End. Uh, and he's more than just a playwright. He's a director of his own plays and other plays and so on. And this particular play, I believe he wrote for the National Theatre yeah. uh, and was criticized. The National Theatre was criticized because it was supposed to be uh, a place where non-commercial, you know, artsy kinds of uh, uh, plays are done that might not make it on the West End in a commercial theatre. And here they were taking, uh, using this playwright, uh, you know, to uh, to. Uh, for the for the National Theatre, what turned out that was that they not only had a National Theatre production of this play, but it moved to the West End. And, and they a, made a fortune. And they made a fortune <laughs> with it. And it had a life, and it was produced in America, and it's produced, it's done constantly. Akeborn should really be better known here because he has an enormous amount to offer. It's not just a, a, a Neil Simon uh, play. It, it's it's more uh, profound, and the the underside of his characters and the inner inner life of his characters is very rich and, and revealing. Well, I find it kind of amazing. I mean, I studied theater, and we never really studied Alan Akeborn. I heard about him through various things. I've heard about him a bit. You know, and I'm looking at his, like, long list of plays in, in Wikipedia, and besides Bedroom Farce, the only other one I think I've really heard of is Absurd Person Singular. That's and, right. And, you know, for somebody who's done so much, it's like... Yeah. Exactly. Stephen, I, I have to let him speak for himself. You have it. I must tell you. Uh, can I just say that he jokes... 
that he purposely writes plays that will not be put into curriculums to be dreaded by school children the world over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's another quote which I think is wonderful. Uh, uh, he says, uh, talking about bedroom farce, uh, uh, he says, I'll, you know, I'll have everything about bedrooms except copulation, something which I believe is hardly practiced in the British bedroom anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have one kiss, one. No. It's, it's, it's the underside of what makes marriage, yeah. not the. Yeah. Well, the, the three couples are of different stages of four. their lives. Uh, four couples, excuse me, in three bedrooms. So they're at different stages of their lives and uh, at, dealing with different problems, different conflicts. And Cynthia and I play uh, Adelia and Ernest, who have uh, uh, been married a long time, and they've made certain— 30-some-odd years. It's you seem like an old married couple here uh, in the studio. <laughs> but our, well, well, our personal history goes back. We've known each other forever, Cynthia and I have. And, uh, and, and, and we like each other a lot. But uh, uh, that, And that is useful uh, on, on the stage if you want the sense of relationship with which everybody who's seen the play says, my God, I can believe you guys have been married for 40 years. Uh, but uh, we are that couple, and you see how their life has settled into certain patterns. They've made their adjustments. They've made their acceptances of each other and so on. They've found a way to live, which is, you know, works for them, and it's, it's very dear. It's very dear. I mean, they had pilchards on toast in bed. I mean, you know, the, the, he reads to her from, from a book at night before she goes to sleep. It's love. Then we have the son, who's <laughs> one of the characters who upsets everybody. I mean, he's hopeless. We have a dysfunctional son he's totally married hopeless. to— right? Wrecks everybody else's relationships. Married and, to a dysfunctional wife. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Right, no. Whom we don't like, by the way. Uh, but, uh, but I learned to love her. <laughs> yes. Yes, Cynthia does. And he, Ernest is very, um, very doubtful. I mean, the, one of the last things I, play, I say in the play, and it's, you know, we all, do, we all uh, use English accents. And one of the last things I say in the play, after everything has happened and all the turmoil and the wreckage has been strewn all over the place, uh, Ernest says, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but it's, it's my firm opinion that that girl is completely potty. Not only potty, but dangerously potty. And I say, no, not really. She's actually quite sweet. Very, very, very dim, but quite sweet-natured. <laughs> so it's really very dear. I think the, the characters are very endearing, struggling with, with you know, their ad, 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 adversarial problems, the things that are adverse in their lives and their problems. And, it's certainly worth a visit and will only be there, folks, until this, uh, November 8th. Uh, wish that we could do it longer. But it's well worth a visit to the Beckett Theater to see this play. And since Cynthia and I are the only two people in the studio, we have to promote it. <laughs> now, in the, the title, Bedroom Farce, is in itself a little bit of a red herring, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so slamming doors, people no running doors. through. No doors. We, no, don't, no, have no, we don't have one single door. door. A no farce? Doors. No doors? What? Right. Because it's not a farce. <laughs> It's not really a farce. It's a it's comedy. A, it's a comedy, but it's a it's a farcical look at the relationships in this play and how they interplay with each other and how they interconnect. Uh, yeah, no doors. Sorry. I think the farce is that you expect bedroom to mean sex, and the farce is 
There is none. <laughs> there is none. But they do all kinds of things other than sex. I guess to compensate for the lack thereof. <laughs> well, what else is there? Is there anything else in the world besides sex? Uh, well, it's food. <laughs> Actually, I think what the play points out is maybe young love thinks that sex is it and that after about two years goes on to so many other things that maybe that even gets lost in the shuffle. Maybe yeah. differently important, yeah. not so important. Yes. Well, important in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says an awful lot, Steve. I mean, he really says an awful lot in two hours. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, as I mentioned before, the Actors Company Theater, you've been on a, a real string of real good critical successes. That's and correct. I'm curious, as a, as a small theater company, how important are those reviews to you in, in um, raising support? Well, I, I, I want to just give you an example. Yesterday's Times had pictures and big reviews and for other plays, and they were all negative. We had a somewhat lesser position, maybe on page six instead of one or two, and the Times came and they didn't have a picture, although they took them, and we were the positive one. And I must tell you, it is very important. And for our younger audiences, which we have online, we had seven positive raves. Very important because we don't start out with a, a pre-sold house. Uh, we have wonderful actors who aren't, quote, stars. I mean, Larry and I are probably the better known. We've been around longer and have had critical success on Broadway. and television and some in film. So uh, reviews mean a lot. We had our single biggest ticket sale day yesterday because of reviews. And uh, if I can add to mm. that, uh, part of it is economics. Uh, we don't have the advertising budgets that they have uh, ah, yes. on Broadway. So we can't splash with ads and calling attention to ourselves. Um, and uh, so we need the reviews. And it's important, given the competition out there, so many things on and off and off off Broadway to be seen, and everybody, every individual just has so many dollars they want to spend going to the theater, unless they're such devotees that they go all the time. But people want to, um, you know, uh, be careful about where they spend their dollars. So they do re-reviews, and they want something good back for the money they spend. So they are very important. Although I must say that we are very reasonable, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a night out on Broadway or even off-Broadway can be close to $100, and we're a ticket. far bit, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, we're and that doesn't count dinner and two people and transportation Close to $100? It's like now at 100 you can easily spend even more than that on just a ticket. Uh, well, on Broadway, <laughs> on Broadway, what, it's, and, it's over $100 a ticket yeah. on Broadway, even for non-musicals. And, uh, you know, the, we, uh, we're the biggest bargain in town. We give you a big bang for the buck. <laughs> <laughs> We're so glad that you could have us on this because yeah. your audience is what we'd like to attract. Now, a little bit before we kind of wrap up, you mentioned that you've, you know, you, the two of you yourselves have done a lot of stuff, you know, mm. off Broadway, on Broadway. Really quickly, kind of tell our audience a little bit about the, what you two have done in your careers. 
Well, uh, I can tell you. You first, Larry. Look, me first. Oh, no, no. You want to go first? No, no. You no, no. <laughs> tell you, you go first. No, no. no, no. You're going to have to believe they're married when you look. see them on stage. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, but more, more recent Broadway appearances that I've done include uh, the musical uh, Caroline or Change, which I was an original cast member of. Uh, and uh, You were brilliant uh, in Titanic. I was playing. in Titanic, which I thought the musical on Broadway. And uh, I also uh, was in Cabaret playing Herr Schultz for a year. But my, my credits, my Broadway credits, go all the way back to the original production of My Fair Lady, which was my first Broadway uh, musical uh, in the 60s. So it'll give you a hint about how old I am. Don't tell anybody. But uh, there, I wouldn't I, have pegged anywhere over thirty-five. <laughs> oh, you're so kind. You're so kind. So, and I, you know, I was one of the original. I've done, you know, that makes like me Cynthia. twenty-six. <laughs> uh, like Cynthia, I've done a lot of television. Probably, I don't know, people. With, your audience is a young audience, so they probably wouldn't know all my children. But I was one of the original cast members of All My Children. Was on it for eight years as a regular, and then made recurrent appearances for the next thirty. Uh, so, and, and done a lot of. Television and off Broadway and regional theater and so on. It's the kind of career that uh, you know uh, is kind of uh, eclectic and cobbles together a lot of activity. And it's so it, and it's varied. And for me, it's been really interesting. I've, I've done a, a lot of narration work for PBS and, and documentaries and a ton of commercials. So uh, you know, I've had uh, I've had a very interesting career, but uh, I'm not a household name. Me, me, me. Um, I'm probably um, most recognizable as Paul Reiser's mother, Sylvia Buckman on Mad About You. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> I didn't make the connection that you say it, but now. Well, I don't talk like her poorly. It's your mother talking. <laughs> you know, I did that for five years, um, which, and at the same time was running the company and doing that. And, um I also, on a very, very different note, for PBS, which you mentioned before, I did Edward and Mrs. Simpson about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and I played Wallace Simpson. Brilliantly. Brilliantly. Thank you. And it was a seven-part series that was shown in all over the world, although done in England. And that's just like, and then the things that company, which is a musical, and I'm terrible at that. And uh, I don't know, lots of Broadway and off-Broadway and commercials. and But those are the things that I, right, would yeah. sort of. Well, is uh, Edward and Mrs. Simpson available on? Yeah, on DVD. You know, it's available on DVD. It's something to be seen. Edward Fox and uh, Cynthia play the, the, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. And. Uh, it's just got to be seen. I mean, you would think she was indeed Wallace Simpson. I wore wigs. And the other thing (laughs) I want to say about Larry and myself is that um, we did Fortact, a spectacular production with Cynthia Darlow and Simon Jones of Home. And the New York Times, I hate to quote the old gray lady, but I do think they're good at it. They said of Simon and Larry that they matched up to and equal to Sir John Gilgood and Sir Ralph Richardson. They were lovely. And Cynthia and I, they said, and the women were good, too. No, <laughs> women were more than just good, too. They were, it was an ensemble of, Again. of, 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 of actually five, uh, five characters. There was a, yeah, another. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing that we're proud of because I don't think many theater companies would risk, A, being compared, B, uh, not doing it, 
uh, because it's so um, non-commercial in a way. Mm. And this spring, we're doing Arthur Miller's Incident at Vichy, which is about uh, takes place in a Gestapo office in Vichy, France. People that are gathered there, and that has never been done since it was originally done. And for fabulous, us to and fabulous play. We want to do it because of those people who were alive during this period are now at the very ends of their lives. And we firmly believe it should not be forgotten. And who else but us would have the folly and the bravery to do such a play? And it makes us very proud. With respect to home, uh, nobody touched that. Uh, for how many years? It was done in 70 before we did it and in, in recently a couple of seasons ago because of uh, Sir John and Sir Ralph, uh, Gilbert and Richardson, because their performances were so... Indelible. Indelible. Nobody wanted to even... I said to Simon, I can't find any two actors more stupid than we are to take this thing on because, you know, you're inevitably going to be compared to two of the greatest actors in the English-speaking theater. Having said that, uh, we we came off very well. So, uh, uh, And the other aspect that I want to focus on as an actor uh, is why tact came into being in the first place. Oh, yes, good, good. Uh, because as a group of actors, many, 16 years ago, we said, you know, rather than hang around and wait for somebody to hire us so we can act, which is what we do. We can't do it without permission. Why don't we put together our own group and do the plays we want to do and the parts we want to do, which, given the commercial nature of the theater and the star uh, uh, focus of the theater, we probably never would be hired to do if this play were going to be done on Broadway, if we're going to be made a movie. And these are parts, as actors, we really want to sink our teeth into and do. And it isn't just the stars or the names who are good at this. There are a lot of actors out there who are uh, uh, really, really skilled, talented, and, and, and wonderfully effective. So we then get now to do plays that we probably wouldn't get to do in any other venue, and, uh, uh, and, and it's enriching uh, as an artist and as an actor. It's enriching to be able to exercise the instrument. If I were a sculptor, I'd take a hunk of clay, I'd go into a studio, and I could work. If I were a writer, I'd sit down at the computer and I'd write. But as an actor, I can't do that until somebody I, I, writes. I really like your specific terminology of that you have to be given permission to work, because I've used that myself. It's a lot of why I, I did do a lot of acting in the past, but I've mm. kind of focused on music yeah. for the same reason, yeah. that I found music just ultimately less frustrating for me, because I yeah. didn't need the permission. No. And, right. exactly. and same, as many roles as I did do, I, I let myself get too caught up in the, yeah. the whirlwind of emotional turbulence yeah. that can come with auditioning and yeah. waiting. Well, my point, my point <laughs> is that for, for the audience, <clears throat> you know, on a, when you're talking about a, a, a production that costs you millions of dollars, the producer says, give me a name or two up there that people will want to come and see so I have a chance of making my money back. But that isn't, you know, and, and, and audiences say, well, who's in it? Who's in it that I know? I hope we can get past some of that and say, what's it about and will I like it? I agree. I, I certainly understand the commercial need for having yeah. names, but personally, one thing I do like about theater is the chances more often to actually go in without any preconceived notion about the actors getting in the way of the material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with movies and stuff, even the smaller roles a lot of times, you know them. You've seen them in a hundred things, and now they're coloring and they're bringing that. But a lot of times when you go to theater, you get to see people that you've 
haven't seen before, and and mm-hmm. you've got no other choice but to you know get well, locked up and believe that they're them in that world. Well, there are a lot of actors out there you may not know, but who can knock your socks off, and uh, and you'll come away uh, having uh, having had a fabulous evening in the theater. <laughs> All right. Well, bedroom farce. You uh, got till November eighth. Correct. To catch it. Uh, any chance of an extension with uh, the things? We don't go there. Yeah, we don't go there. We don't go there because our, our budget and our our focus is on what's coming up. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, <laughs> we don't go there. And that's at the the Beckett Theater at, at Theater, Theater Row, Row, right on 410 West 42nd Street. <laughs> All right. Well, Cynthia Harris and Larry Keith, I thank you so much for coming in and chatting about the company for having and us. Bedroom Farce. It means a lot yeah. that you had us. Thank you very much. Bye. Listening Room. Jason Robert Brown's new musical, 13, about a bunch of, you guessed it, 13-year-old Jewish students has opened on Broadway. The soundtrack is already out, and uh, we've got here a song from that. It's called A Little More Homework. Uh, We're currently working on getting somebody from the show in to talk, but in the meantime, this will have to make do. The soundtrack is available from Shikaboom slash Ghostlight Records. You can find it in stores everywhere and here it is a little more homework the single version from the cast recording of 13 if you stand here behind me and you call me a man and you're counting on me to come through you should know that i'll give you the best that i can but we all have A little more homework to do If you're walking beside me And you want to be friends You should know I'm depending on you So you gotta hang in there Till the whole story ends Cause we all have A little more homework to do And I've been looking in the back of the book For the answers Hoping the bell wouldn't chime But I'm not ready to put down my pants There are too many answers that I didn't get I need a less pressure, a little less pressure, and a little more time. I'm trying to follow, I am trying to lead, I am trying to find what is true. But if you're gonna stand with me, then you have to concede that we all have. A little more homework, homework. Day turns to day, turns to day, turns to day, today turns to day, turns to day. You get a little bit older, a little bit taller, a little bit better, a little bit. Day turns to day, turns to day, turns to day, turns to day. Today turns to day, turns to day, turns to day, turns to day. And I 
I'm a little bit older, a little bit stronger, a little bit smarter, a little bit. Day turns to day, to day turns to day, turns to day. And that was a little more homework from the new Broadway show 13. The cast album is out from Shikabroom Ghost Light and is available iTunes and stores everywhere. Check that out. Page Turners. Well, his name may not necessarily be familiar to you, but you certainly know uh, one at least of the many projects he's in, been involved with. Jesse Cutler just wrote an autobiography, Starlust, The Price of Fame. And uh, one of the many projects that he's in, been involved with was the original production of Godspell by uh, a little guy named Stephen Schwartz. And uh, Jesse's here in the studio today to talk about his book and his experiences. How are you doing? Very good, very good. Happy to be here. Yeah, so you've been doing a lot of a lot of running around promoting the book recently, haven't you? Yeah, we landed uh, in New York City a couple of days ago, and we've been on uh, 15 television shows, radio shows, at the Letterman Show with Paul Schaefer, who was kind enough to write the forward to the book Starlust, The Price of Fame. And uh, in fact, he started playing uh, All Good Gifts on the piano, standing at the famous Letterman pool with the with the uh, with the band. It was fantastic. He goes, how, you remember this? I go, oh, we only did it 800 times. <laughs> and, and I don't know how many people realize, and that's a lot of where your connection comes from, uh, Paul Schaefer, in addition, was also in the original band for Godspell, right? Exactly. When Paul came from Toronto, uh, he was looking for a job, a gig, as they call it. And uh, 
we uh, recommended him to be the sub-piano player for Stephen Schwartz himself. And Paul took over and actually recorded the Columbia Pictures soundtrack album uh, for the movie back in 1973. And we were reminiscing yesterday. It was kind of an... It's been 35 years since that soundtrack was released. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And it's still one of the most produced shows everywhere. And... I heard that it's going to be revived here on Broadway. Well, they they postponed it because of the economic climate. We we haven't heard a, a rescheduled date yet, but hopefully now I'm not sure with all its revivals and all its productions. This is originally it was an off Broadway hit. It started at La Mama Theater, then the backers got involved. In fact, the backers, if, if just for a little trivia, was the fellow who was married to the heiress of uh, Leah Perrin's Worcestershire Shosh. And uh, his name was Stuart Duncan. And Stuart Duncan teamed up with Angela Lansbury's brother, Edgar Lansbury. And then they brought in the Jewish accountant, Joe Baru, and the, the, the trielectic, the three, formed uh, a partnership and then said, hey, this Stephen Schwartz, Godspell, John Michael Tebelak, who was the uh, libretta, is that what it's called, libretta, <laughs> wrote the actual play. Uh, and the next thing you know, Stephen Schwartz was sitting at a piano at my best friend Ricky Shutter's house. We in turn, I was in Hofstra University, which Hofstra got a lot of notoriety in the last couple of days with John McCain and uh, and Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, I was there going. I was a pre-law student in my second year, and Ricky said, "Hey, this Jesse Cutler can play the guitar and sing pretty well. You should hear him." So he calls me up. He goes, "Hey, bring your guitar over to my house." Some guy came over here named Stephen Schwartz who wrote a play. He's coming in from Sands Point. Yeah, I said, I don't really want to come. In fact, Ricky reminded me last night at a book signing. He said, you didn't even want to come over. It was your date with destiny. I called you five times. Anyway, I got over there. Stephen is playing on a slightly out-of-tune piano. And I'm hearing, this is really remarkable, if you think about it, all those Godspell fans out there. I'm listening to Day by Day. All good gifts, alas, I'm listening to the whole score of Godspell on this rinky-ticky piano, and I'm going, hey, I like that name, Godspell. That's like gospel. That sounds pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Nice songs. And then Ricky goes, yeah, play a couple of songs for Steve. So I'm playing a couple of my songs, and I'm singing my heart out. But I didn't really care, to tell you the truth, because I was still in college. And he goes, you want to be in the show? Not realizing the depth or the longevity of this. Well, I'll check it out. Anyway, Stephen left. Ricky takes him to the uh, the uh, train station, and, and Ricky calls me. What do you think? I go, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to leave school. Next week, we go to 90th and Park Avenue. Ricky and I had been in the Young Executives. Now, I remember, if anyone recalls this, this is a long time ago. We were on Mercury Records. We were th- we were the first three piece band of 13 year olds, which is now going into the Guinness Book of Records for the youngest band of 13 year olds ever signed to a major label the young executives. Ricky was the drummer. Now it's some of like four or five years later, and after working for three years and playing with the Beatles and the Stones and all these famous celebrities as kids, as a kid band, he goes, come with me to 90th Street and let's check it out. We go to 90th Street, the door opens up in this beautiful co-op building, and who's standing at the door? Angela Lansbury. So I look at Ricky after living some sort of kind of like quasi-celebrity life in our teenage years, we, the door opens up. She goes, hello, boys. 
And we look at each other, I go, I think this is for real. So we walk through this beautiful co-op, 20 rooms. We go, all these Persian rug, beautiful fridges, thousands of books and bookshelves. And there in the middle of this room is Stephen Schwartz on a big Steinway Grand, nine-foot piano. And all these elderly guys around there with suits on and everything going, love it. This is great. This is great. We're going to invest. And the next thing you know, Ricky goes, hey, you want to do it? I go, all right, well, I'll give it a little. I'll give it six months. I can always go back to school. I'll miss a semester. And then Godspell from the Cherry Lane Theater, which is really where the opening was on uh, Commerce Street. And, and uh, Com Cherry Lane Theater was on Commerce and 6th Avenue. And all of a sudden, within a few months of rehearsal, we had Chinese television, Japanese television, Swedish TV, Italian television. I mean, every television company came down with uh, video cameras to film the pre-production and the dress rehearsals. And boy, it opened up. There were only 200 seats in that theater. And after about, ooh, let's say six months or eight months, something like that, we had to move up to the Promenade Theater in the 70s on Columbus, which is still somewhat off-Broadway, but it was a much, much bigger theater. It held, I think, maybe 1,500 people, something like that, 2,000 maybe. And then that was the beginning of my six months turned into uh, two and a half years at 800 shows, uh, you know, eight shows a week, four shows on the weekend, mm -hmm. a black day or dark day was Mondays. And then Stephen Schwartz allowed me, just before we got up that far to record the original cast album, which went uh, gold and platinum and won a Grammy Award, I said to Stephen, you know what, most of these songs are really guitar songs. So I then started to play All Good Gifts and... Uh, all these other songs, The Last For You, all these other songs became guitar songs. So Stephen Schwartz, in my book, Starless, The Price of Fame, says, quote unquote, which I love this, and I am so humbly appreciative of this. He goes, quote, he helped to define a particular kind of pop Broadway style. That's what he wrote on my book by, by the illustrious Stephen Schwartz, who I say today, when people don't recognize that name, I go, do you know, in 20, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years from now, Stephen Schwartz will be recognized as the Cole Porter of Broadway. This guy had Godspell, then it was Pippin, The Magic Show, The Baker's Wife, Children of Eden. It goes on and on until now everybody knows, if you say Wicked, yeah. I mean, hey, that show is on, it's like Cirque du Soleil, you know, on Broadway. So I'm really proud that I've been connected to him, and when I asked him to do a little writing for me with the book, I go, you know, I'm embedded in your life's uh, legend with soundtracks of Godspell, the original cast album and the soundtrack. My voice is on On the Willows, and I sang on Day by Day and all that. I go, you know, what an experience if you think for a moment, maybe a couple minutes ago, I said, I was going to college, and I, I was pre-law, and all of a sudden my life took a, a detour into the world of Stephen Schwartz, really, when you think about it, who allowed me to become a part of theatrical history forever and ever with the guitars and, and vocally, and I'm very, very appreciative to Mr. Stephen Schwartz, who at this time, I, I saw him recently, is one of the mo one of the humblest people I've ever met in my life with a uh, legacy of so many Broadway hits, it's just uncanny. And I, I believe in the book you also mentioned that you're actually given an opportunity to in, invest in the show that your dad counseled you against. 
Well, I, I, that, uh, you know, they're selling quarter, they're t- selling quarter of one point shares. He goes, ah, eh, those shows never make it. He goes, they they open up in a week or two and they go out. I go, no, th- I got a good feeling about this day. You know, we've always been lucky Italians. You know, you know, I'm, my background has been, uh, you know. Uh, 100% pure uh, Sicilian Roman Catholic background, although most people think I'm Jewish. You know, I'm an honorary Jew, I'll tell you. I mean, but the Baruch HaTorah and I go to the Baruch Hashem, I, I, I was, after the Young Executives and pre-Godspell, I was put into a prep school, which was 99% like a yeshiva, and all these kids were coming into school was the heir to Nathan's Hot Dogs, uh, Fisher-Price Toys, uh, Corner Harmonicas, you know, and it was just an amazing thing. So I kind of assimilated into that uh, into that environment, and in fact, uh, the real my real family name is Gibaldi, for all those Gibaldis out there, and interestingly enough, years later, my my cousin Stephanie Sirocco slash Gibaldi wrote one of the hit songs for Kelly Clarkson that became a star of American Idol, which the Gibaldi family, even though my dad, when Godspell happened, uh, 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 it was the Sheila Weinstein uh, said to me, what, what, so what name you want on the album? So that was a big thought on the Godspell albums. What, uh, I go, well, Louis, Louis Gibaldi sounded a little too ethnic to me. And uh, I go, well, it's the Gospel according to St. Matthew. It's Godspell. I mean, who's the star? Well, it's Jesus Christ. You know, it's JC, JC, Jesse, Jesse. I love the name Jess, Jesse Cutler. I, I saw on all the, the mail shoots in New York, it always says Cutler mail shoots. I go, well, that's a communicative kind of communications thing. So then that was born Jesse Cutler. And now it's what, uh, what, how many years later? It opened up in 71. So it's 37 years later. I've, I've branded Jesse Cutler now as a recording artist and now author. And uh, Godspell, I mean, we can go on for days with Godspell. There were so many fabulous incidents. For instance, when it was at the Cherry Lane Theater and we were doing all the pre-shows, a lot of celebrities came down. I think one of the most interesting moments was meeting Ed Sullivan backstage, him doing his, his typical, hello, we have a really big shoe. And he, he never changed, he never broke persona. It was always... I really like your shoe. It was a fabulous shoe, Godspell. <laughs> we should have to cast on the shoe. And it was like the whole cast was back there. You know, Lamar Alford and all the, all the original people. Uh, uh, I mean, all the names escape me at the moment. Unfortunately, through time over the last 30, almost 40 years, uh, a lot of the people uh, have ascended and gone to another dimension. But Stephen Schwartz, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I try to think every night we played the score. I, and it was always an intermission, so it was always a two-part play. Uh, I used to wonder, you know, that if, if life like this was destiny, was this divine order? Is this uh, predestined? Uh, is it just a lucky happenstance that ha- occurs in our life? That, and I think back at, at the three years of being in the ch- kid band, the young executives, and all that we did driving around with my father being personal manager and doing all the charity shows and the fundraisers and for all kinds of people from Sammy Davis Jr. to Joan Collins, Barbara Streisand. We did all that, and one day my mother stopped the band, and she wanted. She says, you can't be a musician. You have to be a dermatologist. I mean, that was in my mother's programming. You gotta be a, you're a good-looking kid. You'll have your little Porsche. You'll have five clinics, and you'll help all these kids because at that time I was a pubescent kid or prepubescent and I you know I broke out like everybody else and he goes you can understand you have compassion I go I don't think that's for me but I turned to law and then the next thing you know I'm at the Cherry Lane Theater and next thing you know Godspell ran for 
I think, 12 years and a continuous run. And um, everywhere I've gone in life, I, every city I've lived in, Los Angeles and uh, Florida and, and New York and Atlanta and uh, every, so many cities, there was always a production of Godspell at the high school or the college. Uh, it has to be one of the most well-known, affable um, uh, scores, that uh, uh, memorable scores that, uh, that really exist because it wasn't like the typical Broadway kind of thing which is not always my particular cup of tea being a pop singer-songwriter because in those kind of shows you hear, well, I saw you on the other side of the street and I didn't know we were going to meet. Mm -hmm. You know, I never really dug that kind of thing. Godspell was kind of pop music. If you, you go back right now, all you, all you kids out there, all your listeners, and you put on the Godspell album, you'll hear it was very, very... Uh, the pentameter, the rhythms, everything was very pop music, which there was Jesus Christ Superstar was borderline. There was some songs, I Don't Know How to Love Him was, very, was a big hit. And there, uh, uh, Hair, I think Hair was really the super predecessor of the soundtrack songs, right? Hair and all the yeah. Aquarius. But Godspell continued at three level, uh, and I can't think of that many other shows uh, maybe Phantom of the Opera had a couple of, Cats had a song, a couple of ballads. But if you think of the Godspell now in comparison to even now, the Jersey Boys and everything that's out right now, Alter Boys, you know, it still has a pop music flavor. And I think now when you listen to Wicked, it sounds very similar to the Godspell that it, it carried on through 30 years. And when I listened, you know, very carefully, and I'm listening as a musician uh, and a writer, I'm, I'm going... Gee, you know what? You know, I don't mean to take any credit here, but I hear a little bit of that little, just tiny little bit of that Jesse Cutler like guitar riffs in there in the the piano. I hear a little bit of. I'm not taking any credit for it, but I'm just, I hear a little of that uh, genetic mo evolution came about again. And I think uh, for sure, Wicked. Not only did Godspell win the best original soundtrack as a, for a Grammy, but Wicked also won, which is uh, Stephen Schwartz. His second Grammy, but Stephen Schwartz, I think, also won three Academy Awards with Pocahontas and uh, Hunchback of Notre yeah. Dame and some other things. I mean, the guy is a powerhouse. And, I mean, I don't think being around him for two and a half years is a long time. And being given the opportunity to, to contribute the guitars. Stephen will always say this, and he said it recently. Jesse Cutler is the only guy I know that at the end of Day by Day, I do an upscale that -la 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 -la, bring at the end. I, I'm the only one who knows that played a backwards C major seventh backwards. I, instead of going bram like most people, I went bring and I did it high on the bridge. And every time I'm in an elevator now or I hear it playing on a golden oldie station, I hear, I wait for that moment, that last guitar chord bring. And then all you guitar players out there who played the score, you know what I'm talking about. Now, you, you continued working, you know, all through this time, so I'm kind of curious why you chose to end the book at 1980. Well, maybe my memory was kind of petering out at that <laughs> point. <laughs> you know, to think back to 51 when I was born, uh, you know, the opening line is, Terry, Terry, I think I've killed a baby. My dad woke me up because I was coughing and gave me, instead of uh, cough medicine, he gave me like something like pine salt or something like that, It was, and I was spitting it up. And from that point on, if... Anybody's writing any kind of autobiographical journal, memoir, or what have you, or diary, 
to go all the way back to 51 is going all the way back at the time that I wrote it, uh, let's say 30, 39, 38 years. Uh, I thought that the sequence of from that childhood coming from Brooklyn, being born in Brooklyn, and then moving to Long Island, there was a sequence of how that child in the book, I, I wrote it more cinematically than I did autobiographically, uh, how the child moved along, how he went to Italy, uh, fell in love with the guitar in Sicily, as a matter of fact. It was in Marsala, actually. My cousin was playing the guitar. All these kids were swooning. All these girls were swooning over. And when I got back to LaGuardia Airport, 1961, 10 years later, I begged my father for a guitar. And I said, Daddy, I love you. I miss you. But I, I, I'm going to ask you for one thing, and I will never ask you again for the rest of my life. He looked at me. He goes, you want to put that in writing? <laughs> and I said, I, I want a guitar. He goes, are you going to play it? I go, yeah. He says, what kind of guitar do you want? I go, this is the deal. I want a really good guitar, and here's a little a plug for Gibson guitars. Mm -hmm. I wanted a Gibson ES-135 guitar with, with the pickups and the cutout, and the, you know, you could play it acoustically, you could play it electrically, a sunburst. And at that time, it was $385 at Sam, Sam Ash. And Long Island, I think Hempstead, Long Island, we bought it, and I was thrilled with that guitar. And a year later, I had my band, and a year later, we were uh, a side of Mercury Records and on the charts. Uh, I, I went from that point up to 1980 because uh, Je Jesse Cutler, the child, became Jesse Cutler, the child prodigy with a band playing, you know, professionally. And we were the youngest members of the local 802 American uh, Federation of Musicians in Manhattan. And then going on in the, in the timeline, I brought it up to where he uh, starts dating Quincy Jones' daughter, moves from... Godspell Fabergé deal, because uh, he was the first, well, I was the first recording artist there with Michael Franks and Robert Klein. And then how he shifts to California. It was like dying and waking up in heaven when you see L.A. in the 70s. It was gorgeous. You were in the Pacific Ocean. And by the way, for all, the, all those that don't know this, the word Malibu was from the Yamashita Indians. What it means is the end of the line. So when the Indians were traveling west, there was nowhere further to go than Malibu, and then they opened up a Starbucks coffee shop, and that's where everybody stops. <laughs> the bottom line is I, I hit it 1980 because that was a divining point I saw in my mind that Starless, The Price of Fame, with all that I went through with recording contracts with United Artists, with Fabergé, with the Godspell, with the Young Exec, with Mercury Records, I thought that was a very good division at that point to start a second book. So right now I'm writing the second book, in a, and I call a quote-unquote trilogy, mm -hmm. not a trilogy. It's next one I'm writing right now is called Starless, The Game of Love. And so from 1980 to 2008, where we are right now, it actually opens up in Shanghai with my fiance Shirley, uh, landing in, in, in Shanghai, going to Beijing, and landing in China. Who, the kid from Brooklyn would have never dreamed all this would have happened in the first book. Now I do a flashback from Beijing, pre-Olympics, back into 1980, drinking the champagne and toasting to a new year. Uh, because now it's another 28 years. So I'm doing it in 28 years. And that means that if anybody likes the first book and they get the second book, which is now 28, 20, 56, now they're going to have to wait till what, 56. I'm uh, 84 years old <laughs> reflecting back. What's going to happen then? God knows where, as I say, I'm not sure. Is it divine providence? Is it destiny? Did Frank Sinatra know? I don't know. Did Stephen Schwartz know? Did Mike know that he was going to do podcasts when he was five years old? I mean, 
That's the thing, the question that's been asked to me in the media many times. And I, I, I want to say this. Whether it's Godspell 71 or Wicked in 2007, 2008, whatever, the technology has advanced so much that the instant gratification level for kids that want to be famous, that they say, I want to be famous now, five-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old, and I go, famous for what? I mean, you have to step back for a minute and go to the kitchen and on the stove create the ingredients of something magical. It could be the, the, the purveyors of the information, like yourself, be like a Broadway uh, Bullet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, the purveyors are equally as important of the producers and, and chefs because if you don't have the servers bringing it to the table, there's no point in cooking on the oven. And there's not, if there's nothing on the oven, there's nothing to bring to the consumer or the listener or, or whomever. So the reality is I now live many, many years in advance, and I kind of think of myself as a visionary to a degree. And I've been touched by some of the greatest people that ever lived. And to conclude with that answer, I think the 28th has, I was born August 28th, and it's 828, and this year is 2008. And I've now pointed out to my partner, Michael Lay, and my fiance, Shirley Yu, that the reality is everywhere we look, everything is 28. I don't know what this means. But if you add in numerology, for you numerologists listening, 2 and 8 equals 10, which equals 1. And in numerology, everything goes from 1 to 9. So for some reason, I, I keep pointing out, did you see that number there? It's 828. It's 2008. It's, it, uh, we did something special for uh, the book, Starlust, and uh, today is all, October 17th. You don't mind me mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, at the Empire Theater on 42nd and Broadway, I'm the second one in history to put a fabulous uh, book trailer on, which is kind of, it's kind of uh, has a scary tone to it because it says, want to be a star with the sound of Madison Square Garden in the background with no music or, or, or vocals. It just shoots up on the screen. Want to be a star? Paparazzi. Willing to pay the price? Then it goes, and you see the book, Starless. And the only other book that ever did this in history, and I love saying this, is the Da Vinci Code with Dan Brown. I mean, to utilize information vehicles is where it's at, no matter how you look at it. Podcasts, iTunes, uh, iPods, Blackberries, I mean, laptops, broadband, Wi-Fi. What's next? I mean, the next (laughs) thing is implants, and we're just going to walk around like Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, we're already there. (laughs) And I flip my phone, which I'm going to make a sound effect, Beam me up, Scotty. It was just like this, you know, with Star Trek back. When did Star Trek begin? I don't know. 70s, 70s, right? But everything we see now with with scanners and lasers and everything over people, like I got to cut here a bullet when they go like this and it's already gone. It's just an incredible thing. But getting back. Well, just before we wrap up, there was one kind of common theme through the book that I think is important, you know, for a lot of our younger listeners, especially looking at, you know, wanting to make a career and get into this. And that is, you, you, you mentioned throughout the book that despite all your early successes and everything that was going on, that you always kind of felt that maybe your ego kept you from going to the next level further, uh, kind of commonly through. And how important is that, you know, being affable and getting along with people and, and where did you feel that hampered you? Well, uh, ego can be, it's a double-edged sword. You know, ego drives thing. You know, you need a healthy ego 
to get up in the morning, get dressed, and go out and socialize and interact with, have some social intercourse. If you have no ego and low self-esteem, you don't really feel like, like doing anything, and then you can drink coffee all day, and then, you know, there's three types of people, which my uh, fiancé and you may get disturbed by, but I keep saying this thing that was ingrained in me. There are people who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and there's people who don't know what's happened. So there's ex post facto factor, right? The ego for me was... Every, a lot of things came where I walked around New York City with my guitar knocking on doors and saying, I'm a songwriter. And people used to say, how old are you? I say, 18. They go, how could you write a song like that? You're too young. So there was a lot of challenges. I mean, I go, what's the difference how old I am? It's just, this is the song. Don't worry about me. You know, anybody could sing this song of any age. Uh, I, I think we're, there was a certain amount of things that did come easy to me personally, and I've been very lucky. And I think you start to accept things that just fall into your lap and you don't appreciate them. So it wasn't so much an ego challenge, but it was something like non-appreciation of some of the things that did fall in easily, where some of the things were taken away. And I used to try to balance that out. Was it, it was arrogance? I, I, I wrote to Steve and I said, you know, I felt arrogant. And, and he, Stephen Schwartz wrote back, I never found Jesse Cutler to be arrogant, but maybe it was my own, my own self evaluation of thinking maybe I was a little too egotistical because things came a little easy. You know, uh, and I was a young guy, 21, 22 years old. I was given a lot of money by record labels and traveling around in limousines and stuff. You do feel a little different than hopping in and out of cabs in New York, you know, when you have somebody waiting for you and you have a publicist and you have, there are things with it. But now at this point in life, well, I could say this. And this was probably the biggest mistake I ever made, and I'll make it brief. When I was after Godspell, a fellow by the name of Arnold Maxson came to me, was president of MGM. He says, Jesse, you've done the soundtrack album. You've done the original cast album. There's nothing more for you to do here. So you got to go on your course. The next thing you know, Fabergé signed me up. I had a five-year contract. And the next thing you know, I met Quincy Jones' daughter. And she, after several months, convinced me to move to California. I broke the deal. I mean, I had a five-year contract, paid five years. But after the first year and a half, I said, hey, you know, keep the money. Don't worry about it. I don't want to be on Brute Records anymore. I felt like a bottle of cologne. I wanted to be on CBS or RCA or Reprise or... Warner Brothers. And so uh, a year, a, a two or three year span happened where I went down into the Death Valley where there was no action and it became a creative period. And I felt that maybe my ego got involved at that point where now I'm sitting in Quincy Jones' house in Bel Air with, with uh, Roman Polanski and uh, Jack Nicholson and Ray Brown and all these legends, you know, as, you know, you're on that level now, all of a sudden you're on that stratum of life and maybe the ego gets in, uh, what is it, uh, puffed up a little bit, puff daddy. You know, it gets a little uh, inflamed. Uh, that, that's what I meant by the ego. And, and for all you people listening there, don't take everything in stride because he who takes everything in stride trips over his own steps. I read that in a fortune cookie and I found out to be some good wisdom. On that note, uh, again, Jesse Cutler, thank you so much for stopping by. The book is Starlust, The Price of Fame. Uh, and where can people pick this up? You can go anywhere, Borders, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon.com. But if you want to come straight to me, you can go to starlustbook.com, and I'll be happy to personalize the book right to you. All right. Well, thanks so much for stopping by, and best of luck on the rest of your journeys around New York on your swing here. Appreciate it, Mike. Okay, thanks. 
top of the trades. New York Stage and Film, SAF, will hold its annual Winter Gala November 10th at Capital in Manhattan. The evening will honor acting couple Kevin Bacon and Kyra Sedgwick, as well as Douglas Harmon, for their ongoing commitment to live performance and support of SAF. Tax-deductible tickets, which begin at $350, are available by calling 212-736-4240. Visit www.newyorkstageandfilm.org for more information. Actress, stand-up comic, producer and talk show host Rosie O'Donnell, who will try her hand at reviving the variety show genre in November, will executive produce and star in a made-for-television film for Lifetime. Entitled America, the Telepic Variety reports, concerns the struggles of a teenager who is part of the foster care system. The film is based on E.R. Frank's book of the same title. O'Donnell's autobiography is titled Find Me. Her newest book is Celebrity Detox. As previously announced, Rosie's Variety Show will make its debut November 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC. Celebrity guests, comedy skits, musical acts, and contests will be a part of Rosie's Variety Show, which will air live from Manhattan. O'Donnell will executive produce the show with David Friedman. The musical and dance numbers have been announced for the 23rd Anniversary Career Transition for Dancers Gala. On Broadway, a glittering salute to the American musical, October 27th. Hosted by four-time Tony Award winner Angela Lansbury, the annual benefit, which begins at 7 p.m. at City Center, will be followed by a supper with the stars in the Hilton's Grand Ballroom. Written by Deborah Grace Weiner and produced and directed by Anne-Marie D'Angelo, On Broadway is described as, quote, a gloriously historical journey inside the Broadway musical seen through the eyes of legendary choreographers, end quote. The evening will include appearances and or performances by Mikhail Baryshnikov, Kelly Bishop, Cheyenne Jackson, Jane Krakowski, Bibi Neuwirth, Noah Racy, Brooke Shields, Karen Ziemba, and more. More information on show numbers and performers can be found in the show notes for this episode. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up another episode. We got a lot more coming for you. Remember, we're every second and fourth Thursday of the month, so our next episode will be out November 13th. I hope this was enough to keep you tied it over till then. Thanks for hopping on board once again. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and this is Broadway Bull. The hair's going up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bull! A thrilling moment. We're starved, so shouldn't audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So, Jake Kapowski says my name, and I'm in the can. Actually, the bar fade thing comes from my whole life. People just... Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. 
outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.